Well, I want to talk to Christians this morning. I figured this was a good place to do it. <laughs> if you are not a believer in Jesus, if you are on the edge of that or on the verge of that, or, or maybe you're, you're not into that, but you came with a friend or something this morning or a family member, um, you are welcome to listen in and perhaps learn a few things about us Christian-type people. But I need to specifically address something so confirmed by what Mitch shared. Why is it that a person can become born again by the living God and still struggle? What's going on? What's wrong with that picture? Why is the book Fifty Shades of Grey a bestseller, not only in our country, but among Christians? If you haven't heard of the book, it's a pornographic novel in many ways. I, I saw the title. You know the first thing that popped into my mind? Why would people buy this book? Because men have loved darkness rather than light. That's right. If you have it at home, you deal with that. <laughs> Why do we struggle? What, what are we missing? What is a Christian person following Jesus Christ? Okay, God in the flesh punched a hole into this world, made himself relevant to all mankind for all of time, did the remarkable, the supernatural, invites us to be filled with his spirit. Why do we miss that? And I think there's just something we're forgetting here. And it's so simple. Mitch talked about waking up Monday morning, and then mid-Monday morning, and then mid-afternoon. you know, mid The attitude of an all-day constant walking with Jesus. What are we missing? There's a, there's a key to this, I believe. It's very, very simple. But we forget it so often, and so I, I know I forget it. And so I want to go back into Isaiah. I said we were done. I was wrong on two counts. First of all, I said Sunday, last Sunday was our last Sunday in Isaiah. Well, this is our last Sunday in Isaiah. Unless God during the week says, no, we need to do some more, and then we'll, of course, do some more. We like to acquiesce to the Lord Almighty. But I also explained something midweek that I think missed this point, missed something very big. And I struggled with it. It's in chapter 66, verse 19. You can turn in your Bibles there. Isaiah 66, verse 19. And I actually did something I, I've never done before. I went back to the teaching when I got home and struggling through this particular verse and realizing that I spent about five minutes in the teaching talking about something that, that I don't believe was correct. So I deleted it. <laughs> Not for any other reason other than it's very important to me that the teaching we put out on the, on the web is correct, at least as correct as possible. Doesn't mean there's not stuff that I've shared over eight and a half years where I missed the boat. I'm sure there was. But when I become aware of something, I don't want false information or misdirected information. It wasn't anything bad. It was just a misunderstanding of what something is what was written here in the scripture. What is it, Rick? Well, let's look at it. Isaiah 66, verse 19. I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations. Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshach, Tubal, and Javan, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my name nor seen my glory. And they will declare my glory among the nations. 
And then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses, chariots, litters, mules, camels to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. Verse 21, I will also take some of them for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. And Father, I pray that your Spirit will speak directly to us this morning, especially to followers of Jesus, that we would truly hear you. Father, I always pray for those who do not consider themselves followers of Jesus, that they would just simply hear and recognize what is true and make a decision to give their lives to you for salvation eternal. I pray that that will happen this morning, even though this is a largely Christian conversation that we're going to have today. But I pray, Lord Jesus, you would bless this time and illuminate not just the meaning of these few verses, but the purpose for us coming back to them. What is it that you want to tell us in affecting our hearts? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I can sit up here all day long and teach through the Bible. And I love to do it. But unless the Holy Spirit gets a hold of our hearts, they're just words. Even the words of Scripture, true, perfect, wonderful, amazing, are still simply words unless... The Holy Spirit applies them to us. There's, there's a problem that people have, and have always had, and it's a problem with signs. Signs and wonders, wonders and signs. Matthew 12:38 tells us some of the scribes and Pharisees, good religious men, by the way, they always get a bad rap, and it's because they totally missed Jesus, and they were wrapped up and became vain in their own belief and in their own religion. But they didn't start out that way, I don't believe. I don't believe anyone who follows God starts out that way. We just start to go that way when we lose sight in what we're going to talk about today. But they came up to Jesus and they said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And I never felt like that was an unfair question until I saw the context of it. Teacher, we want to see a sign. And Jesus said, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, do you think Jesus believed that Jonah was a prophet? Do you think he believed in the story of Jonah and the whale? That so many illuminated professors and theologians would say, ah, it's just just metaphorical. That couldn't have really happened. Well, Jesus apparently thought so. And he said to the Pharisees, there's your sign. (laughs) We want to see a sign. Here's your sign. (laughs) He gives them the sign, the sign of his own crucifixion and burial and three days later, resurrection. That's the sign. And that's the only one I'm going to give you, the only one that could possibly could possibly get into your hearts, Pharisees. Now why does he say that's the only sign? Well, signs from God can be tricky things. He's given multitudinous signs across history. But they can be tricky because since they come from a supernatural God, signs tend to be supernatural. Because they come from a spiritual God, signs tend to be spiritually appraised. What are you saying, Rick? Signs require faith. 
If you don't have faith, you will miss the sign. It can be on a post right in front of your face. But if you don't have faith, you're going to drive right by it. You will not see it. Here's what was going on with the Pharisees when they came to Jesus. All of Matthew 12 is Jesus on a healing rampage. A healing spree. He had healed a man on the Sabbath with a withered hand. Well, that already had them upset. He was healing one person after another. Matthew 12.15 says, Many followed Him and He healed them all. Massive healing was going on. And just before the scribes and Pharisees approached Jesus, He had healed a demon-possessed man who was both, note this, both blind and mute. There's your sign, boys! But they missed it. What do you mean there's your sign? Isaiah chapter 35 verses 5 and 6 said in their own Hebrew scriptures that Messiah would do exactly what Jesus had just done. Listen to this. The eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Here's your sign. He had just performed the fulfillment of Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 and the Pharisees come up to him and go, we need a sign. Why did they miss it? Because signs require faith. The word sign in verse 19 of Isaiah uh, 66, I will set a sign among them. The word sign is ot in the Hebrew. Ot, just ot. The little asterisk thing above the O if you want to do that. And it means a supernatural symbol. A miraculous mark. And that's the problem. The natural man has a hard time seeing signs. Because he's trying to see them through eyes of flesh. Through vitreous humor. And he misses that signs require faith. Now, faith to a natural man is guesswork. But that's not faith. Faith is never even an an educated guess. Faith is a certainty, gang. Faith is knowing. Faith isn't, I'm going to go for it. Faith is... I know this to be true. I recognize this as reality. I get it. That's faith. Never a blind leap into the abyss. The Bible describes faith, Hebrews 11.1, 1, as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Assurance and conviction. Does that sound like guesswork? Not at all. Faith is a certainty. It's knowing. It's when you know that you know that you know that something is absolutely true. That's faith. And that's how a Christian walks. It's by faith in what we know to be certain, what we know to be true, what we have been assured of time and time again by the Spirit of the living God. And that's why signs are often missed. In Isaiah chapter 7, God said to King Ahaz over Judah... Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Ahaz wasn't being polite and deferential to the Lord. He was being political and defiant. Pompous. I'm not going to ask for a sign. (laughs) What should I ask for a sign from God? No, I won't do that. Lord, he had no interest in silly signs. He didn't want to see a sign from the Lord. He rejected God's offer, had no faith to ask, and so God said, well, then I'm going to proclaim a sign. Not to you, Ahaz, but I'm going to give the whole house of David a sign. 
A sign that would require faith to see. What was that sign? Isaiah 7.13. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Oh, a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son and she will call His name Emmanuel. There's your sign. And yet even today, people look at that verse and they say, Well, the Hebrew word for virgin actually can be translated maiden, and so it's really not miraculous. Okay? The very fact that she's going to call His name God with us says something else is going on here. Right? The sign requires faith. It requires that that certain knowing that comes only from the Lord. And that was just the beginning of the messianic signs in the book of Isaiah. We've spent the last nine months in this book. I hope you haven't missed the signs. <laughs> right and left, we went through all the servant songs of Jesus. Sign after sign after sign after sign that Jesus Christ, as He came and walked in the flesh, was truly God among us. That He was the suffering servant on the cross. That He's the exalted servant, glorified before the Lord. That He's the one who was sent to bring the favorable year of the Lord and the judgment of God, which is to come. All of these messianic signs, including the sign we talked about last week, Isaiah 66, verse 8, that a land would be born all at once, a nation born in a day, one of the most stunning signs of our generation. What was the date of that? Good. Excellent. But there's one more sign here in the book of Isaiah I want to explain. One that I completely, as I said before, missed this past week. And it's a sign that makes the difference between a life lived in faith, following after Jesus moment by moment, and a life wondering if we're going to make it to the next Sunday at all. The thing believers need to know and be assured of and have faith for and in Verse 19, I will set a sign among them. Wednesday night we asked two questions. Like I said, there are two important questions that need to be answered to understand what was going on. And that was the right statement. (laughs) The problem is I answered one of the questions wrong. Two important questions. Who are them and what is the sign? I, he says, will set a sign among them. So we need to know who them are. And we need to know what the sign is. And I got home, and after a long conversation, Spencer and I had a conversation. He said, I know what the sign is. You know, if you were there Wednesday night, you know, he blurted that out. I know what the sign is. And I'm like, hold on, because you might get it wrong. And I hate for that to happen. And then I shared what I believe the sign to be. And then afterward, he shared with me what he thought the sign was. He was wrong. (laughs) But so was I. And so we started working this through together. Brothers, and I love this because there's a dynamic often when you talk to a Christian brother and sister when you're missing something that perhaps they get. Or maybe they don't get it, but as you work it through together with the Spirit, then when Jesus says where two or three are gathered, so two of us were gathered and he began to download some stuff into my heart. And I walked home going, i got to figure this out. I got home Wednesday night about 9.30 and I was up till 12.30 studying. <laughs> you know, I just did. Because this was so on my heart and, and, and spent my conversation. And as I got home and I began to read and study, I saw it. And I want to share it with you. 
what the sign is and what it has to do with them and who they are. And when I saw it, I immediately emailed Spencer. I got it! I'll tell you on Sunday. You know? And he emails back. Awesome! What is it? He said, is it this? And I emailed back, nope. (laughs) And that was the last email I sent him because I wasn't going to tell him until I could tell all of you together. I love him just that much. (laughs) The sign. Here's the deal. I realized when I got home that the first question was answered by the second question. What do you mean? Who are them and what is the sign? What is the sign and who are them? The two questions answer each other. If we know who them are, (laughs) then we should and can know what the sign is. If we know who they are, we know what the sign is. Them, we were correct about this on Wednesday, them is the righteous remnant of Israel. Okay, All of Isaiah 66, God is talking to Israel. He's wrapping up the comfort for His people Israel. And He's talking to them, and He's talking about them, and it is a future promise for them. It's a promise, I believe, that there are going to be Jews here in the seven-year tribulation on the earth when God is pouring out His wrath on this world. There will be Jews hanging on every word of Isaiah 66 and Isaiah 65. And, well, probably the whole book. Took us nine months to study through it, so they'll have time, right? I believe there will be Jews back in their own scriptures, eyes wide open, seeing Jesus on the pages like they had never seen before. And they're going to come to this chapter and they're going to be amazed and encouraged and lifted up and bolstered for the most difficult time in the history of the world and in the history of Judaism. Them are the righteous remnant of Israel, Jewish believers, who will be brought through the fires of tribulation who will survive the tribulation. They will come to faith in Yeshua, receiving Him finally, wonderfully, as their promised Messiah. I'm convinced of it. Them are the ones who will be protected in the wilderness. We talked about that back in Isaiah chapter 16, the first five verses we did a Sunday morning, focused on those who would be protected. Revelation 12, verses 6 and 14, also discusses that, points to that rescue in the wilderness during this perilous time. And the Lord says, here in Isaiah 66, 19, He's going to send survivors from them, that is, from among this righteous remnant of Israel, to the nations. So, if we know who them are, we know what the sign is, keep your finger here and turn to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation 7. book of Revelation is not a hard book to find. <laughs> Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. Follow this through with me. After this, John is writing, he says, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth, or on the sea, or on any tree. In other words, it's dead calm. It's going to be one of those moments in the tribulation where all the shaking and rocking and... and problems facing the earth, you're just going to stop for a minute. And that's not a safe place to be. 
And in verse 2, I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth and the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Follow this through. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Could the Bible be any clearer? People read passages like that and they go, why, why the repetition? Because we're dumb. <laughs> because we need to get it. And even with this speci- the specificity of this passage, there are still people who think that it's them. Like Jehovah's Witnesses. Or Mormons, at least early Mormon theology taught the same thing. Seventh-day Adventists. Their founder taught that they were the 144,000. Not if you're not from one of the twelve tribes of Israel, you're not. <laughs> How could it be more clear? But did you hear it? The sign from Isaiah 66 verse 19 is the seal. The sign is the seal. The sign is the seal. The seal is the sign. 144,000, now follow me on this, 144,000 Jewish people out of the remnant. The remnant's going to be larger than 144,000. Because we know Zechariah 13 tells us a third of Israel is going to come through the fire. And a third of Israel is larger than 144,000 will be at that time. So 144,000 drawn out of that righteous remnant who come to faith in Jesus are sealed for a mission, sealed for a purpose, sealed on their foreheads. They're sealed. How can we be sure, Rick? There are a bunch of signs that are going to take place in the final days as described in the book of Revelation. Go back to Isaiah 66, by the way. How can we be certain that the sign that we read about in verse 19, I will set a sign. could be any sign, right? I'll set a sign among them. Wednesday night I originally said, I think the sign is the coming of the Son of Man because Jesus said they will see the sign of the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. There's only one problem with that perspective. That happens at the end of the tribulation, and this happens at the beginning. So there's a seven-year gap there. And I realized when I got home, wow, that's not that can't be it. Because he sets the sign first, and then he sends them out to do what they have been tasked to do. Now maybe this isn't a thrill to you, but it is absolutely thrilling to me to find out, to discover, and to see what this sign is. But again, you might say, well, yeah, Rick, but... There's all kinds of things going on. The rapture of the church, couldn't that be the sign? The abomination of desolation, couldn't that be the sign? You know, the rise of Antichrist, couldn't that be the sign? The wrath of the Lamb, couldn't... And we could go on and on debating what the sign possibly might be at the beginning of that seven-year tribulation. The signing of the covenant with Israel and Antichrist that kicks off the tribulation. That could be the sign. I don't think so. 
But, but, but pastor, didn't Jesus himself warn us, saying, false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Matthew 24.30. The elect being Israel. Absolutely. There will be all kinds of false signs. And that was my problem Wednesday night. That was my struggle even before I got here. What is this sign, Lord? What is it? I, I didn't want to give the wrong perspective. And that's why I went with Jesus coming, because Jesus is always the right perspective. Even if the application is wrong, Jesus is always right. But I think we can be sure. I think we can be certain that this sign of, Revel- of Isaiah 66.19 is the seal on the 144,000 in Revelation <laughs> chapter 7. Why is that? Well, I told you before, and I shared this Wednesday, that the sign is oat. That that Hebrew word, oat, a miraculous supernatural symbol or a miraculous mark. I, I shared that before. Here's the whole sentence in Hebrew. Visamti bachem ot. Oh, I get it, right? Visamti bachem ot. What does it mean? I will set my sign upon them. I will set my sign upon them. Now read that way. I will set my sign upon them and will send survivors from them to the nations. That's the answer, right? I mean, doesn't that make sense? I'm going to send out of the remnant of Israel, I'm going to send a group to the nations. That's the 144,000. And I'm going to set my sign upon them. What's that? It's the mark. It's the seal. And it became so absolutely clear to me, it's not just a sign that they witness, it's a sign they wear. Christians, listen. Not a sign that it's just a supernatural signal. It's a miraculous mark they bear. And I think it's not going too far out to say that the 144,000 will recognize that mark in themselves. I think it's possible. I'm not saying absolutely. This is just Rick's opinion. But that sign, that mark, will be visible to the other 144,000. They're going to know. Which would be very helpful in subversive missionary work, right? As they go out into the world to preach the gospel under the greatest oppression that the world has ever seen. An oppression we don't feel, by the way. You know how easy it is to preach the gospel right now in, in this world? Oh, it's so difficult. Nothing like the tribulation will be. This has huge, huge, huge significance for you and for me this morning. Why is that? Because, listen, because when you signed up for Jesus, you got sealed. You got sealed. You can read about the 144,000 and go, wow, they're going to be sealed for their job. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are sealed. It already happens. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. He who establishes us, Paul writing, with you in Christ and anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. The word sealed there is the same word sealed used for the 144,000. He sealed us, how? With the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Ephesians 1.13 In Him you also, have, after having listened to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. We were sealed by the Holy Spirit. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And I believe there's a lot of grief in the heart of the Holy Spirit over Christians who do not recognize they have been sealed. I think the difference between my days where I am walking very much in the presence of Jesus and aware of Him all day long and those days where I'm struggling moment by moment is I am not recognizing the seal on my bad days. I'm ignoring it. I'm setting it aside. Perhaps for my own ingenuity, my own wisdom, my own strength. As opposed to recognizing I have been sealed. By the Holy Spirit. I was listening this morning, Han and I, before we came out over here, a little bit to Bob Caldwell. Bob Caldwell is the senior pastor at uh, Calvary in Boise, Idaho. And he's so fun to listen to because we saw him a year ago at a pastor's conference and the guy's dressed like a cowboy. He, he lives in Idaho. He's been at this church 30 plus years. But he talks like a Southern California surfer dude. And it's just it's so incongruous. You're going, man, he needs a Hawaiian shirt or something. He just doesn't look right. But he's talking, and, and he, he, he was sharing about when he came to Christ. And he was a hippie back in the 60s. He was part of the whole Jesus People movement. But he said early on, you know, uh, a bunch of my friends were going out to get stoned. And he said, so I stayed home, and, and I said, I want to read the Bible. He said he picked it up at a thrift store somewhere. And, and, and so he had a Bible, but uh, he had read all kinds of other mysticism and Hindu writings and all kinds of things. And he thought, well, I'll give the Bible a shot. And he, he decided to start in Matthew chapter 1. Which he said is not the best place to start. <laughs> because if you know Matthew chapter 1, it's a genealogy of Jesus. Which to someone with faith is an amazing, rich, full chapter. But if you don't have faith, it's like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. And Bob Caldwell said he, he put it away, he didn't get it. But a, a time came later when he got into his VW bus, went out to the beach, took his Bible, and decided, you know, this was after he had been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And he went out there to try again. And he was blown away at what he read in the Bible. He said the pages came alive to him. He saw things. He could, he, he, it was rich and beautiful and, and just amazing for him. What was the difference? The seal. He was sealed. When you come to faith, and you may not even realize it, when you give your heart to Jesus Christ, you are sealed by the Spirit of the living Christ. Amen. And if sealed by the Spirit of the living Christ, why do we not live that way? Why do we even have to have teachings about books like Shades of Grey, or teachings about drinking, or teachings about gambling, or these, these, these very superficial issues in the world around us? Why are we even talking about that stuff? If we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of the living God, why are we not just on fire talking about here on Sundays amazing, deep, rich things in Scripture? That's what frustrated Paul as he wrote Hebrews. I think it was Paul. In Hebrews chapter 6. And he said, you know, you ought to be teachers by now, all of you. He wasn't talking to you. He was talking to his readers at the time. You ought to be teachers, but, but you're like infants. You're, you're dwelling on the elementary things rather than moving on to the rich things in Christ. Why? Why is the church continuing to be elementary rather than graduates out in the world preaching and teaching the truth of the gospel because we have forgotten that we are sealed by the Spirit of Christ? What does the seal mean? Okay, if, if I accept that I have the seal of the Holy Spirit, what does that mean? 
What did it mean for the 144,000? What will it mean for them then? What does it mean for believers now? And I want you to think through just a few things this morning with me. What's practical and and relevant for that 144,000 is exactly what we have now. Number one, the seal is a seal of property. It's a seal of property. Property, like buying a property, real estate. A seal of property. What do you mean? The 144,000 are purchased by God. You have been, if you give your life to Jesus Christ, if you have, you've been purchased. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. You are property belonging to God. In 1 Kings chapter 5, Solomon purchased a large amount of cut cedar and cypress logs. You can go back and read about it. He bought them from Hiram, the king of Tyre, which is Lebanon today. Called up there, or sent word up there, hey, I need some, some good wood here. And you guys are the best, you know, at, at the way you cut these logs. And I want you to send them on down, because I'm building a temple. And he entered into a contract with Hiram. Now, it doesn't say this in Scripture, but we know historically how they would contract for these types of things. The proof of purchase was not a slip of paper. It wasn't an electronic receipt. Hiram didn't email the receipt to Solomon. The purchase was a dollop of melted wax that would be dropped on each and every log. And before it hardened, a signet ring bearing the purchaser, Solomon's in this case, uh, special insignia or bearing his name would be stamped into that wax and it would harden. And on every piece of log, every cedar and cypress wood that came down had that seal on it and that said, this belongs to Solomon. He bought this. He purchased this. He would, each log was sealed. Okay, Each board sealed. Revelation 14, verse 1, speaking of the 144,000, says, I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with Him 144,000, having His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. Sealed. Stamped. Purchased. They were property. These are the ones, John writes, who have, listen to this, who have not been defiled with women. They have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. So who owns the 144,000? Jesus does. Who owns you? Does He? He does if you're sealed. You're property. You belong to Him. You have been bought, Paul tells us, and this is the third time in so many weeks that this has come up. 1 Corinthians 6.20 You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Why does this keep coming up, Lord? I'll tell you what I think. Because it's random for me. I didn't go looking to read 1 Corinthians 6.20 again today. Let me read it a fourth time. You have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. What does that mean? It means there's somebody who's here who still has to hear this. Somebody who is still not getting it, that your body, if you call yourself Christian, Christ follower, if you are Jesus' people, your body belongs to Him, not you. And so if you're sinning with your body, knock it off. Stop. It is not your body to sin with any longer. It belongs to Him. You've been purchased. Yeah. Did you notice that the 144,000 sealed by God in Revelation 14, what I just read, they were pure and chaste. 
Why were they pure and chaste? Because they were bought by God and their bodies do not belong to them any longer. That's the secret, by the way, to sexual purity in this world that is so sexually impure. In a world where I've told you the difference between Christians and non-Christians when it comes to sexual immorality is nil. Just as many Christians getting divorced, just as many Christians having affairs, just as many Christians in sexually immoral relationships outside of marriage, and it's stunning. And we forget, our bodies are not our bodies. We have been bought with a price, a bloody, brutal price that Jesus paid on the cross. Hey, you don't have to be bought, by the way. It's your choice. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus. He's not strong-arming anybody. It's grace that is offered you. But if you accept that grace, you are a purchased person. And the secret to a sexually pure, spiritually faithful life is recognize your purchase order. Recognize your seal. You have been sealed. Live that way. 1 Corinthians 7.23 Paul, in the context of slavery, said you were bought with a price. Don't become slaves of men. You're a slave of God. Well, I don't like being called a slave of God. (laughs) Tough. You were bought, dude. Dudette. You belong to Him. It it is a seal of property. That's the first thing to note. For the 144,000 and for believers today, the seal is a seal of property. Number two, it is a seal of indemnity. A seal of indemnity. Usually you hear that word connected with insurance companies. And that's because that's what it means. It is insurance unto endurance. You've been indemnified. (laughs) I was going to come up with a bunch of rhyme words with that because it just sounds like, you know, a cool southern preacher. I've been indemnified. (laughs) I've been justified. Indemnified. Anyway, sorry. Here's what I'm saying. The 144,000, they're indemnified. They have a seal of indemnity. What does that mean? The endurance of the Jewish people is a sign of God's indemnity policy for Israel. The sign of their endurance. You're sealed, 144,000. You know what that means? You will endure this tribulation. You're going to be here at the end. And of course, Revelation 14, we see them there at the end on Mount Zion in Jerusalem with the Lamb. How they survived the tribulation? They were indemnified by Jesus. The seal is a seal of indemnity. The sign of the seal. It indicates their very survival. I will set a sign among them and will send survivors, some of your translations say escapees, from them to the nations. They're going to survive. Just like Israel. Which is why May 14th, 1948 is such a crucial and critical date to know. It's not just to have a number in your head or a a fact that you can spew out. It's to recognize May 14th, 1948 proves to us the endurance of Israel. Not by their ingenuity, but by God's divine design. By His divine righteous choice. Matthew 24. You can turn there if you'd like to. Matthew 24, but let me just read this quickly to you. Many of you have heard this. Verse 32 says, Learn the parable, Jesus says, from the fig tree. He says, When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize He's near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. 
Now, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the fig tree is a very clear symbol of Israel. It's used several times, and we won't show you right now, we've done it in previous teachings. Throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, the fig tree as a picture, as a metaphor, as a type of Israel. And so when Jesus draws on the fig tree, talking to Jewish people, that would ring a bell. They could recognize that the fig tree is a parable, so, so it's a story, it's an example, it's, it's something that he wants us to get here as a parable of the fig tree, and he's talking, it must be Israel. And on May 14th, 1948, I believe the fig tree put forth its leaves. When you see this happen, this fig tree, he says, you farmers know it, you fig tree owners know it when it starts to put forth its leaves and turn green, you know what's right around the corner. What? Summertime. It's just about near. We, we, do, we, we watch the signs of the weather all the time. And based on today, fall is here. <laughs> August, what is this? 18th? Anyway. But he says something, and I pointed this out, but please catch this. Verse 34, this generation, he says, will not pass away until all these things take place. Well, people who are reading that superficially said this generation will not pass away. But that generation did pass away. So Jesus was wrong. That's not what he was saying. This generation will not pass away. There are two possibilities for what he means with that. It can either mean an age. This age will not pass away. And that could refer to the generation alive at the time that the fig tree ripens. The generation that sees the fig tree, the nation, become a nation in a day. Which is one of the reasons I believe that we're in the last days. Because we have seen the fig tree ripen. We know summer is near. We are in the end of the end of the end of the last days. We're here. But it can also mean something else that doesn't take away from that perspective at all. Jesus could be saying, Israel will not pass away. Because that word generations, gania in the Greek, also can refer to a people group. So either he's saying the generation alive when that fig tree blossoms will not pass away, or he's saying Israel, which is the fig tree, will not pass away before all of this takes place. They will still be here. Indemnity. Assurance. Well, which is it, Rick, really? The the generation alive on earth when Israel became a nation again, or the people of Israel themselves? Which one is Jesus talking about? doesn't matter. Because either way, the reemergence of Israel indicates that we are at the tail end of the year of His favor. We're right there. Wednesday, the 15th, in Jerusalem Post, Iran's Ayatollah Khomeini, who is normally a far more quiet leader than his predecessor, the Ayatollah Khomeini, the Ayatollah Khomeini said, quote, the fake Zionist regime will disappear from the landscape of geography. Now, this is not coming from crazy Ahmadinejad. I'm in the mood for a jihad. This is... this is. I give Jim credit for that one. Or Ahmadinejad, you could call him that if you want. It's not coming from this nut. This is coming from the top spiritual Muslim leader in Iran, the Ayatollah Khomeini, and he says Israel's done for. And the rhetoric coming out of Iran right now is pretty stunning. They're saying, we are going to wipe Israel out. Saudi Arabia is in bed with Iran again. Their leaders just met this last week. That's not something that's happened. Saudi has been typically afraid of Iran, but I think Saudi Arabia is beginning to recognize if Iran goes nuclear, we want to be partners. 
We want to, you know, so let's keep that bridge uh, free and clear. Others are crawling into bed with Iran as well. Iran and Syria are tied up together. The Brigadier General Golamrizi, Golamriza Jalali. I can say Jalali. He's a Jalali guy. The former commander of the Revolutionary Guards in a speech ahead of Al-Quds Day over uh, an anti-Israel campaign that was initiated by Iran, he said the following this last week, in order to liberate Palestine, there, was, there is no other option but to destroy Israel. What does God say? Isaiah 66, verse 22, For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. That's God's word on the subject. God's word on Israel. Israel's not going anywhere, gang. The Jewish people will not be wiped out. They are going to survive to the very end of the age through the tribulation. The remnant sealed as assurance, a seal of indemnity to prove and show that fact. Guess what? So will the church. The church is not going anywhere until Jesus says, come up here and then we're going. Pre-tribulation, before that seven years, but no one's going to wipe out the church before it happens. You don't have to worry about that. Pastors being sent to jail for holding Bible studies, you don't have to worry about that. I say bring it on. That's where God wants me, bring it on. Maybe I should say, if that's where God wants me, bring it on. Bible students, what is the next thing on God's prophetic calendar? The rapture of the church. Everything that the Bible says had to happen, before that could happen, has happened. There's nothing left to happen but for us to go home. And I know there, you know, people say, what about the Gog-Magog invasion? And and you Bible students who argue that point, when's it going to happen? You know, it's kind of beside the point because it could happen before or it could happen after. And if you don't even know what I'm talking about, Don't worry about it. We'll cover that another time. (laughs) The rapture of the church. If you aren't unaware of what the Bible teaches on the rapture, raptus in the Latin, harpazo in the Greek, the catching up. It's just to be caught up. That's what the word means. If you're unaware of it, unsure of it, doubtful of it, read these passages. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Or just the whole chapter is fine. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. Read those chapters. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52. Again, or the whole chapter if you'd like to, but those verses hone in on it. Luke, chapter 21, verse 36, where Jesus says, pray that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place. John 14, verses 1 through 3, what is the place Jesus was going to prepare for us? So that He may come and receive us to Himself, that where He is there we will be also. Now some people say, well that's just heaven. In general, then why is he coming back to earth? Why go prepare a place for us there and then come back here to rule for a thousand years? What's that about? Seven years of honeymoon with Jesus in heaven, the place he has prepared for us before we come back with him for the millennial kingdom. Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 is fascinating. Compare that to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Revelation 4, 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul describes the church being caught up. John describes his own catching up, and they are remarkably similar. Read those together, or you can go to the website and listen to that teaching on Revelation chapter 4. We do a teaching on it, just those two verses. But speaking of indemnification, endurance, 
of the lastingness of God's people, not only the remnant of Israel, but the church. Revelation 3.10, Jesus said, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. It ain't for you. And I said that last week. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, We are not destined for wrath, but for salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. You will endure. You have the seal of the Holy Spirit. The seal of the Spirit in your life. You will endure. No matter what your condition or situation in life. Believers, listen. Mitch, hear me. No matter what's going on in your life, don't give up. Don't stop moving forward in Christ Jesus. You have been indemnified by the very Holy Spirit of God unto eternal salvation. This is a huge, massive gift and promise. And He gives us His Spirit, not just to help us wander through life, but that we can know, that we know, that we know we're saved. Saved people. In every aspect of our lives. Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Isn't that interesting? What do you do when you finish a letter, you stick it in an envelope, and you seal it? And once it's sealed, that letter is hidden until it's opened. Your life, sealed by the Holy Spirit, is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. And what does that mean? You will be revealed as God sees you. You will be revealed as you are intended to be. I don't see myself right now the way God sees me. I see myself as flawed, as fallible, as sinful, as immoral, as stupid, and I could go right down the list. I see all these flaws and imperfections in my life, but that's not how God sees me. And how I am in Christ is going to be revealed. Right now it's hidden, it's sealed up. Sealed by His Holy Spirit. It's a seal of property. It's a seal of indemnity. Number three, it's a seal of authority. Christians, it is a seal of authority. Back in 66 verse, where are we, 19, the the latter part. So he says, I will send survivors from them to the nations, Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshach, Tubal, Javan, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they will declare my glory among the nations, and then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering. So Wednesday night we saw this. Let me make sure you all understand. The 144,000 actually have a twofold task. Not just a singular task, they have a, a double task. The first of those tasks is they glorify God with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's task number one. They are sent out to all the nations. They are a crack missionary squad sent out with the truth of Jesus Christ and more powerful because they are Jews who accept Yeshua as Messiah. Who can go to the world and say, we didn't believe it before either. But we have finally seen and accept that Jesus is our Messiah. And we can show you through our Hebrew Scriptures and we can show you through the New Testament Scriptures He is the Messiah. They are sealed with authority to go. What are those nations? I I missed this on Wednesday night. I meant to share it. I didn't tell you. Tarshish is either Spain or Great Britain. Could be either way. But it's, it's the western side of the Mediterranean. People think probably Tarsh, uh, Spain are a part of Italy, but there's, there's other uh, teaching and things that could be Great Britain itself. Put, put and lud, actually put in the Hebrew is pull, P-U, so it's not, you're not putting, you're pulling. P-U-L and lud both refer to indicate African nations. 
Okay, so we're talking about heading west. We're talking about heading south. Meshach, Tubal, is very clearly in in historical understanding Russia, the region to the north, region of the Black Sea. Yavan, which is also, or Javan, um, is the Bible refers to as Ionia, and that's Greece. Okay? The point of all these, and what I believe the Lord is saying here through Isaiah, uh, and the calling of the 144,000 is north, south, east, and west. They are God's force of Jewish evangelists, and they are called to go forth into all the world to glorify God with the gospel. That's mission number one. That itself, again, is going to be an amazing fulfillment of another sign. What sign are you talking about? Isaiah 43, verse 21, where God says, The people who I formed for myself will declare my praise. They're going to do it. They're going to do it. And the result of their mission will be absolutely stunning. Revelation 7, verses 9 through 14, which follows the description of the 144,000, tells us what they accomplished. There is a massive, multitudinous soul harvest of people who are saved in the tribulation. Know what that means? It means Jesus doesn't have to wait for the church to finish the job before He takes us home. Well, I don't know, Rick, because Matthew 24.14 tells us this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And some say in the church, many missionaries will say this, they say before He can come, we have to fulfill the mission. Not so. The mission ultimately is going to be fulfilled and finalized through the remnant of Israel, specifically the 144,000 sealed evangelists. They're going to do it. They will finish what we leave incomplete when we are pulled out of here. We've got to understand that. God will see to the preaching of the Gospel to all the ends of the earth. But that finalization, that final call of the Gospel is after we have left. And it is when the Jewish 144,000 go and they will take the glory of the Gospel. Oh, so we can just leave it to them? Eh, No. (laughs) Listen, this does not diminish the mission of the follower of Jesus right now or our responsibility one iota. Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore. Whether we finish or complete the mission or not, we go. Military guys and gals, you understand this, don't you? You're part of a mission. You're sent out as part of a mission. Now, your deployment may not fulfill the mission, but you do your deployment. And the mission may be fulfilled after you've already come back home. But you do your deployment. We've been deployed. We belong to Him. We're His property. We are endurers through Him and by Him indemnified. We have the authority of Him. We have been deployed to take the Gospel and go to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, Jesus says, to obey all that I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even unto the very end of the age. But though our calling is no less urgent... The reality of evangelism after we're out of here does something for us. And I think this is important. It relieves us of the arrogance of thinking that we will get the job done. Praise the Lord. I'm part of the mission, but I am not the finisher of the mission. I don't want to be. There's a certain pride that can creep in with that. I just want to be part of the deal. 
I just want to be on your team, Lord. If I have to sit on the bench, whatever, I'm on the winning team. I would do that if the Lakers called me today. (laughs) By the way, the single biggest challenge to rightly handling our authority in Christ is arrogance. We're righteous Christians in that world. We live in All those people who are opposed to Chick-fil-A, you know, they're just wrong. They're wrong. (laughs) How wrong is that? Our very mission is to those people. Our very mission is to the people who hate the church. That's our calling. So please hear this clearly. Our authority as Christians, listen, is never vertical. Right, Les? talked about this last week. Our authority as Christians is only horizontal in that we walk together as brothers and sisters in Christ in a world of people who horizontally need salvation just as badly as we do. But we do not have vertical authority. Only one has that, and that is Jesus. He has authority in this fellowship. Your your shepherds, your leaders, pray, go to the Lord with every decision, but have horizontal authority. They do have authority. The Bible gives authority to those He calls into leadership. We have to recognize that. But it's not authority to lord it over anyone here. It doesn't make any leader in the Bridge Fellowship better or spiritually a little higher, you know, or with a weightier word than anybody else. The idea here, what I'm saying is in Christ, no man is your authority. He is simply your brother. In Christ, no woman is your authority. She is simply your sister. We walk together under His authority. Got it? That's the authority we've been sealed by, the authority of the Spirit of Christ, not the authority of man or the authority to lead it, lord it over. Mark chapter 10, verse 44, Jesus said, Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Let me make this point. I know we're going a little longer this morning. Hang with me. I'm taking next Sunday off so you get a break. Disciplers and disciplees, you've got to heed this because a lot of carnage has happened in the church in the name of discipleship. Okay? If you're discipling someone else, your role as a discipler is not to lord it over that person. Ever. Ever. And if you begin to, to sense that someone you're discipling is hanging on your every word and will do everything you say, whatever it is, that is a danger sign that's a red flag that goes right up the pole. You need to back away and recognize your fallibility with a brother in Christ. Disciplees. If you start to look at the person teaching you about Jesus and walking with you and sharing about Jesus, you start to look at the person discipling you as better than or higher than or someone whose word you have to follow to the T... That's dangerous. I've seen entire churches blown away by that kind of discipleship mentality. You know what? Discipleship is one brother walking with a brother sharing Jesus together. Two sisters walking together. And let's make that distinction. No man should be discipling a woman other than his wife. And no woman should be discipling a man other than her husband. That's a whole sermon for another time. My authority in Christ, gang, is to point you to Christ. That's the sum total of my authority here as as pastor. 
to point to Christ and then to back away. By the way, another side note. Got a lot of side notes this morning. I got to I got to thank you all. I appreciate so much how you handle this. This is for first hour gang. The fact that as soon as we're done, I, I tend to bolt out the back door, and I hate that I. I it's difficult, you know, with the way we're doing things here that I, I would love to be at the door. Every now and then I just say whatever and I go greet at the door. But ten, typically when I do that, if I can't get home and get five minutes with my family and walk my kids down and just get a little break, then second hour I'm like, you know, if I go straight through. So I take that little break. I appreciate that so much. But more than my appreciating that, part of the reason is that you don't have to talk to me. I love talking to you, you know. But you're probably going to get better advice from Les. <laughs> or Glenn, you know. Or Joe. <laughs> you're definitely going to get more affection in terms of hugs from Joe. All that to say, you know what, we just walk together in the Lord. And, and uh, so when I slip out, I, I appreciate that, that break and... Um, just know that my heart is not is not to leave. When we have a building, which I love to say, when we have a building, um, yeah, I'll be I'll be more available at that time. We walk together under His authority. There's one more thing that the uh, sealed squadron are authorized to do, and it's very cool. Verse 20 of Isaiah 66 says, "They shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering." We really got into that Wednesday night. What the grain offering is? It's a first fruits offering, and what it means. But the bottom line is, the Jewish people and this 144,000 will be serious about rescue. Serious about getting into the world, not only with the gospel, but to gather the the survivors. And they are now blessed, richly by the Lord, to not only bring the gospel in the tribulation, but at the end of it, they're the ones who get sent out to make sure every Jewish survivor still alive somewhere in the world who has fallen in love with Jesus are brought home. They go to do that. What a blessing. Jewish people have always been serious about rescuing their own. We see Abraham do it in Genesis 14. He rescued his nephew Lot in a stealthy guerrilla attack on four kings. One of them who may possibly have been the uh, Hammurabi, for you historians. We saw in 1976 something amazing happen in Uganda at Entebbe Airport. Some of you were around, remember this. Four Muslim hijackers forced an Air France Airbus to land at Entebbe. There in Entebbe, uh, four more terrorists were awaiting them. They set free everybody on the plane, except for 105 Jewish hostages. And these Muslim terrorists at the time demanded the release of 53 of their Muslim terrorist brothers and sisters from uh, jail in Israel And so they held these hostages. They gave Israel 48 hours to comply. At the end of 48 hours, if their 53 were not released, they were going to start executing each one of these Jewish hostages one at a time, all 105. While the world waited and watched, Israel hatched a plan within a matter of hours. It's one of the most exciting books I've ever read. It's called Entebbe. It's written by Edo Netanyahu. Brother to Benjamin Netanyahu, the current prime minister, also brother to the leader of that squadron, a guy by the name of Yanni or Yonatan Netanyahu. They flew in under cover of night. They transformed a couple of massive airplanes to be able to take 
jeeps and what they needed in. They landed it in Kebi in the dark without lights. They got out of the planes, got into where the hostages were, and every single one of the 105 hostages were rescued. There was one loss of human life. Yanni Netanyahu was killed. Everyone else got back on the planes, and though it was a tragedy of loss, 105 Jewish survivors escaped and were free. There is something tenacious about these people. And it's something God has put into the heart of the Jewish people. And I I just tell you all that to say when the 144,000 go out, they will glorify God through the tribulation and they will gather the survivors at the end of the tribulation. And it's not going to be by Jewish chutzpah. It's not going to be by their ingenuity or cleverness or bravery or any of that. It will be by the seal of authority. You have the seal of the authority of the Holy Spirit to go into the world and rescue people. And that is how we need to look at non-Christians. Not as the enemy. We have an enemy. We know his name. We are to look at non-Christians as people who are in chains, who are captured, who are hostages, and we got to go get them until Jesus calls us out. The seal of authority. Last seal. The last seal. It's a seal, and perhaps this is the most important, especially if you're struggling day in and day out with your Christian walk. It is a seal of identity. A seal of identity. Remember, in Revelation 14, it tells us of the 144,000 that His name, His seal, is upon them. The seal on their foreheads is the name of Jesus. Yeshua. And the name of His Father. I don't know if that will be Yahweh Yeshua. I don't, you know, I'm not sure. It's not specific. But the name is the seal. Like Solomon's name stamped on the logs coming down from Tyre. The name is the seal. Uh, verse 21 says, I will take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. And just as the new heavens and new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name, your name will endure. Why? Because their name becomes His name. Because His name is their identity. And I think, throughout all of eternity, we're going to know who the 144,000 were. I think they're just going to always have that. That little mark. That seal. Oh, you're one of the... How was that? That must have been amazing. Tell me stories. They are the property of the Lamb. They are authorized, indemnified, and identified as that special group of Jewish evangelists. What about you? What are you known for? What's your identity? Don't brush over this one. What do you want to be known for? There are so many wannabes in the world. And gang, there are so many wannabes in the church. There there was a time in my life I wanted to be John Corson. Until I heard him laugh. There have been pastors and preachers and teachers. There have been musicians. There have been people in my life that I've looked up to and said, Oh, if I could, oh, I wish I could be. You know who, who I am, what my identity is? I am Rick Crawford who belongs to Jesus. That's my identity. I'm who I am in Jesus Christ. Who are you? Who are you in Christ? The only wannabe that I want to be is like Jesus. To be His. 
His seal on me identifies me with His Spirit in me. And check this out, Romans 8.16, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. There's your faith. There's your knowing. How do you know? How do I know I'm saved? Well, if you don't know you're saved, then I wonder if you have the Holy Spirit at all. And if you don't, maybe you need to ask Him. Maybe somehow you missed something. You need to turn to Jesus and say, I want to give you my whole heart, my life. I want your Holy Spirit to fill me and indwell me and overflow me. And I'm asking you, Lord Jesus, to confirm in my heart that I'm a saved person. Not the teachings of Pastor Rick or anybody else. I want to know I'm saved because you tell me I'm saved. And when Christians ask me, how do we know that we're saved? I go, are you kidding me? You don't know? I know. I have known since I was 10 years old that I was saved. It's not because I'm that smart. It's because His Spirit testifies with my spirit that I'm a child of God. 1 John 2.20 John says you have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. How do we know? Faith. Faith. We know that we know that we know that we belong to Him. Amen? Amen. And we are signed, sealed, and delivered. We have the sign, and the sign is the seal, and we are delivered because of that. Let's stand together. So the invitation, the altar call, this morning is to Christians. And if you are not a believer in Christ, and you want to give your life to Him this morning, you completely ignore me, and you come forward anyway. All right, But we're going to have shepherds up in the back and up front here. But I invite anybody standing in here this morning, if you are not certain of your salvation, and you want to be certain, then you come up front or go to the back and you pray while we sing the song we're going to sing. If you're a Christian and you've been walking with Jesus and struggling in that walk and unsure of, you know, where's the strength? And in your own strength, you're failing. You need to pray this morning. And you don't have to pray with one of our shepherds. They're just available there as, as horizontal brothers in Christ to pray with you. Grab another believer. But please, this morning, don't walk out of here shaky in your faith. You are a sealed people by the Holy Spirit of the Lamb of God, Jesus Himself. And Lord Jesus, we love You. I pray this morning for certainty. Because I believe, as Your Word tells us, You died to seal us to Yourself. Lord Jesus, to be Your property, to endure by Your indemnity, to go with Your authority and to bear Your identity. And I ask for this fellowship. There are so many others. Father, we pray for all of Your church in the world. But here in this gathering of believers this morning, I pray, send us with your seal. The seal many of us have, but perhaps have forgotten. May we be aware of and alerted to it by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen.